All right, we're going to be continuing on in our series in Zechariah uh, as we've been going through the gospel, our series called The Gospel and Zechariah. And, you know, as I introduced kind of last sermon when we first started it, you know, this is sort of a series that we wanted, we wanted to go through a Old Testament book that wasn't preached on that often. Um, that is kind of a difficult book for a lot of people to read through. Um, I think a lot of the students from Stepping Stone actually read through it recently for their sort of discipleship sort of things. And, you know, and you hear a lot of like, you're just reading stuff and you're like, what is this? Like, how am I supposed to relate to this at all? And, and so we thought it would be good, you know, as, you know, to be able to go through a book like that, to be able to do a lot of studying together. So sermon series, I feel like is going to be pretty heavy on just a lot of scripture, a lot of, you know, just kind of digging in to the meat of what's going on. And we're going to be covering a lot of stuff today we're technically going to be covering from one to six uh but don't worry it's not going to take hours you know i'm going to be doing a brief overview and i really do think that this unit is sort of one big unit in some ways and so that's what we're going to be talking about um i've kind of talked titled the sermon you know unfinished unfinished business um i was like kind of toying around with the words of sort of what, what captures kind of the the vibe of this these chapters of what's going on and you know, I think unfinished business or unresolved tensions maybe perhaps is, you know, a good way to describe what's going on. Um, because there is kind of this sense of things being unfinished and things being what they, not what they ought to be. And I don't know if you guys have been experiencing that in your life. Um, you know, Alice mentioned she's been having chaotic couple of weeks, um, you know, or just, you know, for myself, even just looking, you know, just thinking about sort of um, what are the things that just feel like, oh man, like this is not complete yet. This is not what it should be yet. Um, but I also, you know, just also hard things as well. You know, I think about relationship conflicts, you know, that aren't resolved. And unfortunately, there are, you know, people in my life that, you know, I would love to be reconciled with, but, you know, uh, for whatever, whatever reason, you know, you have unresolved tension, you have unresolved conflicts, you know, because of the circumstances, you know, oftentimes in the family, I think, uh, areas of active tension in our life, things where we're just like, you know, we want this to be a certain way, but it's not yet, you know. And so I think we, we're, we're constantly as Christians living in this tension of, you know, what we want things to happen and what we want to be, you know, but as I talked about last sermon, you know, this is the disappointment of just things not being uh, what we hope they be, you know. Um, and so that's kind of what we're digging in today is just like this unfinished business that um, the, the people of Zechariah are experiencing. Uh, just to kind of give the background a little bit of what's going on, um, you know, just last time we talked about that they're coming back from exile, right? So they're coming back from these 70 years of being kept in captivity, um, slaves to a different nation. Um, they've been recently released to go back home, and they're going back home, but their home is in shambles, right? Their home is in ruins, um, and so there is a lot of unfinished things in some ways, you know, that need to be done and, and a lot of sort of looking to God um, and, and asking kind of where is God and all that. So we're going to be talking about uh, just giving us a quick outline, you know, what is this unfinished business, the things that ought not to be that they were experiencing, um, setting things right, um, God's retributive and restorative justice. And we're going to look at what that looks like and what those words mean. And finally, we're going to look at the, the coming resolution that all of this points to, uh, the day when things will be finally made complete. So I'm going to start reading in Zechariah 1. Um, so on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Udo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And so you have this, you know, this, this passage at first, you're just like, okay, what is going on? Like, what are we supposed to take from this? But um, there's this picture of these horses, right? Among these myrtle trees. I like, really like this artist's depiction of it. I try to give credit down there too. As well. Oh, that's their Instagram. Um, but this kind of picture of these horses, right? Um, patrolling and they come back and they're meeting in this valley, this place where the myrtle trees are. Um, and, and so there's this kind of, there's this kind of symbol, um, this kind of vision of God's, you know, horses in some ways. These are, you know, representatives of his sovereignty, his, his sort of knowledge of everything, coming back, you know, giving a report of what's going on. And at first you might think the report is positive, right? The earth is at rest. You might be like, oh, that's like a good thing, right? Like there's peace, like, you know, people aren't fighting. There's no big war going on, you know? So that could be a good thing. But that's not the response that the angel gives, right? The angel of the Lord says, O Lord of the hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And so what's going on? Like, why, why, is, why is the angel's response instead, you know, the fact that the earth is at rest is an indication that God is not having mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? Well, it's because of that background that we talked about, because there were unfinished, unresolved things that were going on. And the peace that they were experiencing, the rest that they were experiencing was a false peace and a false rest. Um, I don't know if you've kind of watched the movie Encanto before, you know, but um, I hope I don't, but, you know, <laughs> the general sort of sense is, you know, there's kind of this surface level of sort of things operating and being what they should be. And from the outside, everything looks good but there are cracks in the foundation, right? There are, there are unresolved tensions in that family, as you'll see that get explosive, right? And they're gonna come into the service. And so this is kind of what's going on here in this case um, is that there are unresolved things. And the primary unresolved thing is when we remember that Israel has just been ransacked and exiled by Babylonian empires. I mean, these, this empire was brutal. They had come in, they had committed war crimes, um, they had, you know, raped and killed and, and killed innocent people and murdered babies. And they, they'd done horrific things that I don't want to talk about. And there is no justice and there was no accountability for any of that. There's no resolution. You know, Babylon as the empire had not, that nothing had happened to them in that sense where they had like, you know, suffered sort of this sort of retribution, you know, for what they had inflicted on other people. And not only that, you know, but these empires were still at large, but Jerusalem was still this broken place, um, this place that still was not really much of anything. And even though they were allowed to go back to this land, there was great sorrow in that. And so I think that's why the angel responds to this fact that the earth is at rest. 
It's not a good rest, right? It's a false peace. It's a, it's just, you know, it's the kind of peace where the, 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 the evil people are victorious, you know, and they're dominating over everything. That's the kind of temporary peace that's occurring. So in short, there is a lot of unfinished business. There's a lot of things, you know, that the people of God, I think, are crying out to him about, that they're dissatisfied with. And so how does God respond? Well, you see here, he's, he answers with gracious and comforting words. You know, he always, I feel like God always does, you know, when you see these kinds of lines. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? And this could be an indictive kind of statement, you know, but God always does respond graciously with comforting words. And not only that, but God validates their need for justice, right? God validates their sense that something is not right. And he says, you know, so the angel talked with me and said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. <clears throat> for while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. And so here God is referring to, yes, he used these nations you know, to bring judgment on Israel. If we know the history of it, you know, they, that's why they were brought into exile because of centuries and centuries of idolatry. And God was bringing judgment, righteous judgment on Israel. You know, but that doesn't mean he's going to leave the people that he used um, unaccounted for. Right? He's going to, you know, this Babylonian empire that he used, the Syrian empire that he used. You know, he says, I'm still angry with them. I'm still angry with what they did, how they did it. You know, it was wicked actions. And, you know, I'm with you, Israel, in some ways he's saying. I'm with you, Jerusalem. I feel the same kind of righteous indignation, the same kind of restlessness over this unresolved thing going on. And so I think this vision first kind of invites us to consider a few things as we think about perhaps our unfinished businesses, you know, our, the things in our lives that are unresolved, you know, the injustices perhaps that we've suffered or we've seen the people that we love suffer. There are a few things I think that, you know, this vision kind of, you know, under the surface sort of, sort of talks about. And the first thing is the most obvious thing is that God is sovereign, is that he is in control. And the first thing is that that's a picture of the horses. They're a symbol of military might. They're a symbol of, um, you know, empires would have horses go and patrol the, you know, the, the edges of their empire. And here is this kind of same picture. Here are the horses of God, patrolling the empire of God, the whole world, right? And saying that God is absolutely in control. And I think it's something we forget about. I don't think we like, you know, ever disagree with that. We don't ever go, God is not sovereign. But, you know, we forget that. We forget, you know, even as we sang earlier, you know, God's not worried, right? Why are we worried? You know, God is in control. And not only that, but he knows and he cares about what's going on. And, and sometimes I feel like that's the peace that we doubt, you know, yeah, God's in control, but he's distant. He doesn't care. He's just, he hasn't been responding for a while. And here you see in this vision that God knows and he cares, right? He's, he receives reports. He sees what's going on. He's aware of the injustices going on. He's not just like, what? That's going on. And he responds, right? He responds with this validating anger, right? Over the injustices of what was going on. And as we will see in the rest of these visions, he promises to act as well. And so, you know, as we're just, you know, going through this passage, you know, we're talking about Zechariah, but I want us to sort of think about also for ourselves, you know, the perhaps the ways in which this applies to us. I don't know what your guys are going through, 
Um, but you know, here are some areas I think of perhaps injustices or unresolved issues that you perhaps have in your life. You know, individual sin and frustrations, you know, in our walk with God, that's always a classic area where we're just like, what is going on, God? This is not what it should be. Um, I'm not what I should be, right? Family brokenness and injustice. I mean, this is something that has just been on my heart lately. Um, I feel like families always look good on the outside, right? But there's always so much brokenness, you know? And I think about my parents, you know, I think about the ways in which we sometimes sort of become numb, you know, to the difficulties and the pains, you know, family. And we're just like, yeah, this is just what it is. Yeah, this is just life. You know, everyone, everyone experiences this. And it's true to some extent, but, you know, there, there is still this call, I think, to mourn and to grieve over what's hard, you know, um, over what shouldn't, what ought not to be. For me, I mean, my, my parents actually got divorced recently this year, but they had, you know, so it was coming for like a decade, you know, so I wasn't surprised, you know, I'd, I'd a grown adult at that point. Um, I had many conversations with my mom about it. You know, but I, I realized how jaded, you know, I'd become, you know, in my relationship with my family, where I'd stopped hoping in my family, you know, ever since when she first talked about it. I mean, it's very traumatic back then, you know, but it had slowly, gradually, it was just easier for me just to stop hoping and, and to stop believing that anything would good would come out of it. You know, and I really struggled, you know, when my mom kind of made that final decision. Um, mom's not, doesn't know the Lord, you know, in some context for her uh, for as well, that you know, she was kind of operating out of her, her own sort of, you know, where she was and what she was thinking about. Um, and, you know, it was difficult, you know, for me, you know, even just seeing that final blow of just like, well, you know, this is our family shattered, you know, this is, this is like the final sort of thing that we've been seeing coming, you know, and then recently I, I have been challenged, you know, to think about sort of the brokenness in my family and to mourn over it, you know, the, to mourn over the injustice is what's going on you know, and to cry out to God and to be like, this is not what it ought to be. And to look to God's sovereignty, to look to God's righteous anger over things that ought not to be. And I don't know if that's the case for you guys as well, you know, whether you guys have family things or just difficult things. Now, I'm sure everybody has something, you know, and I, and I think these are things to keep in mind as we relate to the people of Zechariah who are also suffering over things that, that weren't resolved. Injustices in our society, in our world, I mean, I don't think I need to say any more about this. You know, we are surrounded constantly, you know, um, by just, by just, you know, this overwhelming tide of horrible things going on, you know, with even just the crisis in Ukraine um, and what's going on. And, um, and it's difficult, right? It can become overwhelming and it can be numb to us. So we want to look forward to the rest of these visions where God starts to talk about what he will do. You know, so they're unfinished business. He acknowledges that. Now he says, how will I set things right? And I see it primarily in these two kinds of actions. I'll talk about what these mean more as retribution and restoration. So we're about to cover a lot of scripture really quickly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I realized we couldn't read through all of that for sure. Otherwise we'd be here for hours, you know? So I kind of selected a little passage that represents each vision. And we're going to go through these visions because these visions were kind of rapid fire. Um, and they're really all part of this like conglomerate whole of what God is going to do. And I wanted us to consider them as a whole as we're kind of studying this. So we're going to go through them real quick. The first vision is in Zechariah 1, 18, 21. And I called this Jerusalem's bullies bullied. Um, Jerusalem's bullies bullied. And so there's this vision of these horns. And these horns are representative of these nations 
that conquered Jerusalem and had bullied them. And, and it says, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised their head, you know. And instead there's, you know, I don't understand, you know, why they use these words. <laughs> this is context of ancient people, I guess. But, you know, then they had these craftsmen come and these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so there's this picture of the people that bullied Jerusalem, <laughs> you know, the people who have done horrible things to them. They will be bullied in this sort of like poetic justice kind of thing. And I think about how oftentimes, you know, this is something that like everybody yearns for, you know, when we watch movies or we shows and we, you know, we, you know, we, we see a particularly like brutal character or somebody who's really just a snake or something, you know, and we're, and we're just like, oh, we're just waiting, you know, for them to get <laughs> what they deserve. We want to see that satisfying resolution or something. And so we see this, right? We see an acknowledgement from God that there is this retribution that's going to happen, that Jerusalem's bullies will be held accountable to what they will, you know, they will suffer in some ways the same fates that what they did to other people. So that's the first one. Jerusalem's bullies will be bullied. That's what God is going to do. He's going to bring retribution um, to make these things right. Well, the second thing he's going to make right is he's going to restore Jerusalem from disgrace. And this is perhaps the other side of things. And then, you know, there's this vision of this angel who goes and he has this measuring tape. I and mean, these are some weird visions, right? Um, but he's got this measuring tape. He's like, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. Like, I, don't, I don't even know how that works, but okay. You know, he's going to measure it. And then he's told, wait, don't go and measure it because Jerusalem is going to be without walls. You can't even go and measure it. <clears throat> Zechariah 2, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the livestock in it. <clears throat> and I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. I just love that verse. I feel it's just such an epic verse, such an amazing sort of picture. But here we have, you know, God's promise to Jerusalem that, yeah, it's in shambles right now, but it will be restored. And we talked about this a little bit last sermon. You know, it will be this overflowing city without walls. You know, this infinite city that people just, you know, and there's no need for walls because God will be its defense. You know, God will be its security you know, talk about a national defense program, right? Um, and I will be the glory in their midst. And most importantly, Jerusalem will be restored to this place where God's, God's glory will dwell. And because of that, all the nations will be coming to Jerusalem. And so there's this grand picture of what God is going to do to Jerusalem. He's going to restore it from disgrace, this place of honor. Oh, hello. Okay, guess we're going to have to do that. Uh, go back to that one. The third issue that's going to be resolved is Jerusalem's guilt before God is going to be removed. And Michael's actually going to talk about this more in depth next sermon because this is just such an important image. Um, but the third issue here is that, you know, Jerusalem's guiltiness before God, right? Jerusalem is in this place where they, you know, you know they, they had suffered the vengeance of God. And so, you know, this vision is this vision of a courtroom scene where Jerusalem, represented by this person, this high priest, is standing before this courtroom. And God declares them innocence. And God puts, takes away their dirty clothes representing their, their sinfulness and puts on clean clothes representing their renewed, their good in the eyes of God. And so in Zechariah 3, when it says, Behold, I, I've taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And there's much more to that. And Michael will talk about that next week. The fourth one is that Jerusalem will be empowered to succeed. Um, so there's this, another bizarre picture of this lampstand um, that represents Jerusalem, right? This, this, this 
a candle of flames in some ways, and there's olive trees. These olive trees are piping in oil to the lampstand so that the lampstand never runs out of oil. Another very bizarre image, right, that needs to be interpreted. But the interpretation of this image is that the olive trees in some ways represent, um, they represent these two people that God is going to use, these anointed people um, that God is going to be using by the spirits to sustain the community. And so there's this famous phrase, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit to the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, that's one of the people, you shall become a plain. And so there's this picture of God spiritually empowering the nation through its leaders, um, that they're weak right now, that they look weak, but through the spirit, not because of who they are, they're going to be empowered in this, in this powerful way to accomplish these things, you know, these things that need to be done in Jerusalem, the building of the temple, the building of the wall, all these kinds of things. Jerusalem empowered to succeed. That's the fourth thing that God is going to set right. Fifth thing that God is going to set right is he's going to deal with injustice within Jerusalem. He's going to hold it accountable. And here we have another bizarre image. This is one of a flying scroll. You know, this flying scroll is like this huge scroll and it's got these curses on it. It's, it's very intense. And on one side, it's cursing all the people who steal. Other side, it's cursing all the people who um, bring false witness you know, scholars talk about those as being representative, you know, sort of crimes in some ways of injustice, right? Thieving and, um, and bearing false witness as these representative ideas of injustice. And so you have this huge scroll flying over, and the idea is that God is going to bring retributive justice, so this again is about retributive justice, over the land, over the land of Jerusalem. So in Zechariah 5, it says, this is a curse that goes over the face of the whole land, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. And finally, this is probably the most bizarre image out of all of them, which is saying much. <laughs> you know, there's this picture of, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> there is this basket, okay? And then there is this, uh, this woman who represents iniquity, represents sin. Um, and this, it's, it's weird stuff. <laughs> and it's like that woman's like put inside the basket and there's like a lead cover put on that, you know, to kind of seal it. You know, this is representative of iniquity. And the basket is lifted away by angels to Babylon, which is the enemy empire. And, you know, and, and, and it's this great symbol. I don't understand why, wow. but it's this great symbol of God removing the iniquity of Jerusalem. And so that, this is the final one that comes because God deals with the very heart's of Jerusalem. He restores them, not just by name, not just in their standing before God, but he completely removes their sin. He gets rid of their idolatry. He gets rid of all these things that caused them to stumble in the first place. That is one of the things promised. I'm going to set right you, <laughs> not just your standing, but your heart, who you are. And so that's that picture of Jerusalem's sin completely removed. Six visions, okay? So Together, I think they represent God's actions of retributive and restorative justice. Um, and I, I like these two words because they kind of represent what God is going to do and what he does. Retributive justice is paying back the evil people for what they do, right? Holding the evil accountable. And we see that in the nations punished for their wickedness towards Jerusalem, right? That's the bullies being bullied. We see that in accountability for ongoing justice within the city. So Jerusalem's not off the hook. You know, those within the city are going to be held accountable. Yeah, and we see that before that by Jerusalem punished by their exile. And we also see restorative justice too. We see Jerusalem restored to prominence, right? That's the second vision. 
We see Jerusalem's guilt before God removed, and we see Jerusalem's sin removed, right? And so we see there's also this picture of rehabilitation, if you will. And people have talked about those kinds of two sides of justice, that you have one side of justice that is punishing the criminals, that's you go to jail and you deserve that because you murdered somebody, you know, but there's also rehabilitative, restorative justice, right? Which is also talk about how do you rehabilitate people who have done wrong? You know, how do you heal them and how do you correct them and make them into people who don't do wrong? And both parts are aspects of God's justice because justice means God making things right. And both parts are necessary. You need both retribution and you need both restoration. You can't have one or the other without the other. And I think in our day in society, I think the temptation is to get rid of one of them, especially within Christianity. I think theologically, it's, I think we tend to, there are people who tend to lean towards one side as justice without talking about the other one. So there are people who lean towards the retributive side and that's where you get the famous, you know, like, you know, people who just only talk about God as a wrathful God, you know, God hates these people or whatever, all that stuff. You know, they have no idea that God's heart is love, right? And that he wants to restore people, you know, and he's not just out just to get people because, you know, just, just to judge people because he's some curmudgeonly person, you know, it's, and that's how some people, you know, because they overemphasize our retributive justice. They don't even talk about the other one. They don't talk about God's heart at all. And they misrepresent who God is. On the other hand, I think this is more of a temptation probably for us and for our modern day is that we only talk about restorative justice. We get rid of the retributive stuff at all because we're so just uncomfortable. I think oftentimes in the rest of society with the idea that God will bring vengeance and God will bring judgment. That's just, you know, it reminds us too much of that side. So we're like, let's just get rid of the whole thing. But there are major problems when we get rid of that. They're major problems because it, in, in some sense, we, we reduce God to this God of love who doesn't really hold anybody accountable, who doesn't really, you know, doesn't have any meats or weights to his words, you know, who just idly lets by, you know, who says, I love, I love, um, but doesn't really take a stand against anything bad that's going on. There's this man named Miroslav Volf, he's a theologian at Harvard. Um, he talks about the necessity of retributive justice, and um, he's a famous person that's often quoted. He, he grew up in the Balkans, so he grew up during a time of civil war. He saw, um, experienced some horrific things, and he has this, you know, he has this famous quote that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Let me say that again, because it's a little startling. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And he's trying to say that the whole foundation for how we love and forgive as Christians actually requires that we understand there's a God who's gonna hold people accountable and there's justice. You can't do that without this. You know, and then there's this quote here where he says, you know, to the person who's inclined to dismiss it, you know, because he knows a lot of people who argue with him. You know, he, he says this, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, things the people of Zechariah experienced, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. I'm, I'm sorry if this is triggering or intense for people. I mean, this is intense stuff. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, 
soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Um, these are some fire words, <laughs> you know, but he's calling out, you know, Western sort of understanding of these things as like, well, of course you're okay with that, you know, because in some ways you've never experienced these horrific things that people do to each other that demands divine vengeance, that demand accountability, that demand things to be set right. And there, there is no setting right without that because you're asking the victims, you're asking the people who've suffered, you know, to bear that without any validation, you know, of what's going on. You're asking them to just bear it, you know, and, and just, and just in some ways you're perpetrating even more injustice to those who are suffering. So I found that a very powerful quote for us. And we see that, of course, you know, going back again, that God validates his, you know, the anger that they have with the nations that are East. And that might be for some of us who've suffered sort of things or seen people suffer. You know, this is a thing for us to know that, yeah, God cares and he will do something and he has vengeance, right, for what will happen. At the same time, we see almost paradoxically restorative justice, oftentimes on the same people. And I point this out because I think we see the restoration that God does to Jerusalem. But, you know, it's tempting in this to see, well, God loves Jerusalem and he just hates all these other nations. You know, it's tempting to see it that way. But it's not true. Because in Zechariah 2.11, it says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. The ultimate blessing that God is going to put on Jerusalem isn't just for Jerusalem itself, but it's to make it this place that other people are going to be benefiting from. And so in Zechariah 8, we saw this last week. I read this last week. You know, but just again, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. You know, and so the whole point of God blessing Jerusalem is because God loves the nations too. You know, and, and so on one hand, you have this paradox of, well, he's going to, you know, exact divine vengeance on them but he also loves them and he wants them to join to him where do we find that but in you know the most famous verse in the bible perhaps for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life when i was thinking about this you know going to this verse to realize the fact that it says that for god so loved the world makes it inescapable makes it undeniable that the scope applies to everybody. It applied to the Babylonians too. It applied to the Syrians who perpetrated horrific war crimes that God was saying simultaneously, yes, I will have vengeance on you, but I also love you. And I'm, I love you. You're part of the world. We're all part of the world. If we're human beings, we're part of the world that he gave his son. And so we have this incredible truth. And this is why the gospel is so precious and so unusual <laughs> among so many beliefs in the world. We have this unusual truth that God, God has his enemies and he acknowledges they're his enemies, but he dies for them and he loves for them. And that is, that is astounding, right? That is different. We find that in the cross. And this is what a lot of people say is perhaps the central tension in scripture. Uh, the central unresolved tension in scripture is that how can God both exact retribution on people who deserve it and love them and restore them at the same time. Sounds like a paradox. How can he, how can he like pay back people for their sins, but also want their good and love them? And you see both of them in the Old Testament and it's not resolved. You have no idea how that's going to happen. It's just like a, a paradox, even a contradiction. Well, that's why we have the New Testament. <laughs> that's why we have the cross because in the cross, 
you see the resolution to that central tension. You see retributive and restorative combined. And you see this truth that what happened was that God put his retributive divine vengeance upon Christ. Um, that, he, that he acknowledged it, everything we've done, deserving bad things, he put that upon Christ. He put that upon himself so that he would be able to extend to us unending love and unending grace. And so we see in the cross both validation for every evil act done, that it's not going to go unpunished, that there is a consequence to it. The consequence was Christ's death. And at the same time, we see God's incredible love, that he put that on himself. He didn't put it on us so that we would be able to be restored, so that we would be able to have life. Guys, this is the truth of the gospel. This is why it's so amazing, and I dare you to find any other truth in the world that says something that, that affirms both um, and, and shows it so beautifully in this one picture, right? In Romans, it says, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are justified by his grace's gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is a sacrifice. God slaughtered his own son in an act of divine vengeance against humanity put on his son. That's that bothers people, <laughs> you know, but that's the only way I see that paradox resolved. That's the only way I see evil held accountable and also God's love for the world in the cross so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's pretty amazing to me. <laughs> and I wanted to point that out in Zechariah um, because we're talking about the gospel in Zechariah, um, that you can see it from every single angle here, um, what God has done for us. And, and how he loves us. And because of that, we have a foundation to love your enemies. Now, I was just thinking through this, you know, I was thinking about, you know, how God has now changed, you know, what God's application for us today is now, you know, you can summarize a New Testament application by love your enemies. That is such a weird thing that nobody does in this world. You know, even harder than love your neighbor is love your enemies. And I say this, we can love because we, can, we now know that God does not overlook sin and holds evil people accountable. We don't love thinking they're going to, we understand that God did, you know, validated and did what, and understands the evil they did and put it on his son. And we can also love because we know God's heart for evil people, which includes us, is ultimately their redemption rather than judgment. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but that's just something I was just reflecting on that Help me to understand the basis of how we love, why we love, and how we have the strength of love is when we understand the cross, we understand what God has done. I think we have power to love people, even when they perpetrate injustice towards us. So I want to wrap up. Uh, this is short. <laughs> Just with the final vision, because there is actually one last vision, and we didn't read it. So the first vision was about the horses, God's sovereignty, and you have these visions you know, of what God will do, how God will retributive and restorative justice, how he set things right. And finally, you have a vision that I would say points to the day in which God will complete all things. I'm going to just quickly read this for us. Zechariah 6, we're at the end now. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four chariots came out from behind, behind, between the two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. It's supposed to evoke like a parallelism with the first one, right? Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. 
The chariots of the black horses go to north, the white go after them, dappled ones going south. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to the me and said, behold, those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. There needs to be some explaining going on. But here we see an, a similar image of the first image. We see the horses that are sovereign, you know, that are represent God's sovereignty. This time they're chariots. So they're about to go do battle. They're not just patrolling. They're not just scouting this time. They're about to get stuff done, right? And you see these two mountains, these mountains of bronze that represent, you know, like strength in some ways. And these chariots are going out and they're about to do God's will, right? They go out to the north and the south and, and all that. And why is the north highlighted? Because the north was the original location of the Syrian and the Babylonian empires, right? It's this representative place of evil, right? It's symbolic place of evil. And so, yes, those who go to the North country, you know, have put my spirit, set my spirit at rest. So you see at this picture at the end of it, before there was the earth at rest and God not at rest because there's injustice. And now you see at the end, you see the earth, you know, under God's will and you see God at rest. And that's that resolution to kind of this whole section that we're talking about. But, you know, when you look at it, you know, it wasn't the full resolution. Because when you see it, you see that um, in Zechariah's day, there wasn't fully these things come to pass, right? You see that the empires um, continued to actually, you know, the Babylonians indeed were toppled by the Persians, so it did happen. But the Persians became the new bullies. <laughs> and after that, the Greeks. And after that, the Romans in the time of Jesus. And Israel never was able to escape fully out of that. You see Jerusalem, yeah, indeed grew. They had a wall, they had a temple, but it wasn't exactly what that vision had said, you know, this eternal city where everyone's gathering in. And so you read Zechariah and you're like, well, did God not answer his promises? Well, no, because Zechariah ultimately points to the day when things will finally be complete. Um, and we see that in Revelation. I'm not going to go through this in too much detail, but I think it's so important to end here because that's where Zechariah points. And Zechariah says, what, you know, I'm giving you all these visions of how God will restore and bring justice to the world, even though it's not going to happen in our day. And he points to Revelation. And he says, and, and there are these three things that happen in Revelation that each have to do with this. There's this judgment before the great white throne. And that represents God's final act of retributive justice. God is about to hold everybody evil accountable for everything they ever done. <laughs> That's what the judgment before the great white throne is. And it says how there's going to be these people of the book of life who are saved, who are escaping that. Not because they don't deserve retribution, but because they are in Christ, because they have had faith in him, they've been washed by his blood. Second, we see a new heavens and new earth. God just gets rid of the whole thing and he makes a new heaven and new earth. And in this new heaven, there's no weeping, there's no suffering, there's no disease. You know, the world, the natural world is made right. And finally, we see in that, in the middle of that new heavens and new earth, at the center of it, we see the new Jerusalem. And finally, we see that picture from Zechariah come true. New Jerusalem is this infinite city, this eternal city without walls, where God dwells, where the nations come in, and everybody, like the whole world is at peace because they finally know who God is, and they are brought in right relationship with him. And that's the picture scripture leaves us with. It's one of the last images it leaves us with. I think that's telling for us, what are we supposed to think about? What are we supposed to hope in? I think it's the new Jerusalem. You know, and I think Zechariah helps us to understand, you know, they were waiting back then for the resolution to their problems. We wait as well. And we understand that that will only be fully brought into picture 
at the day when God comes, he brings about this as prophesied in Revelation. So that's Zechariah 1 to 6. Thanks for bearing with me, guys. <laughs> Went through a lot of stuff. Uh, hope you guys understand. And <laughs> want to just summarize finally just with some, you know, some major points for us to think about. I think we can take comfort in God's sovereignty, knowledge, and care about unjust situations. He absolutely knows what's going on. He cares. We can rejoice in God's actions of justice, both retributive and restorative, because they both have their place. And finally, we can rest in God's coming day of completing his works of justice. We can, even in the not yet, in the not completed now, we can look to the day when it will be. It's, it's promised by God. It's going to happen. You know, someday God is going to bring that about. And we, you know, as Christians, we as people of him who have put our faith in him, will be able to share that with him. We'll be able to live in that and experience that and see that. Let's pray. Lord, we just, God, we just cry out to you, Lord, for all the, all the unresolved things in our lives. All the things that are not perfect, Lord. Whether that be just our own sinfulness and the ways we fall short and we are disappointed in ourselves. Or whether that be in our relationships with other people. Ways that other people disappoint us. Way that other people maybe perhaps inflict injustice upon us. God, there is so much to mourn about in this world, Lord, if we were to pay attention and, and if we were to really press into it, there, we could mourn for ages. But uh, God, I thank you, Lord, that you give us so much more than that. You give us hope. And Lord, although we might not feel it in the moments right now, we thank you that we know that your word is true and that it never fails. What you promised, you will do. God, I thank you that you have promised some amazing things. You promised you will deal with it, Lord. Everything in our hearts that just gives us that dissatisfaction, that feeling of just, oh, this is, this is still hurting. This is not resolved yet. God, in some way or form, you will deal with. I thank you so much that your, your view on justice is not so small, God, that you just, you know, you just... Offer just some kind words that don't really mean anything. I think I thank you that your view of justice is so complete and so comprehensive. Encompasses every single thing that we could possibly have a problem with. I thank you that you will one day set things right and that you are doing that right now. You are in the process of setting things right. God, will we be able to hope in that? We'll be able to rejoice in that right now, Lord, as we look forward to it. In Jesus' name we pray.